Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today in our Masters series, we are again talking about silent cinema, about the origins of American cinema, about D.W. Griffith, the man who made cinema what it is. We have already done a two-part podcast about Birth of a Nation, and it has been very well received, I am pleased to say. So we are continuing with a series. Now we'll be talking about Intolerance, but we have three more D.W. Griffith movie conversations to offer our audience in future. Today we are doing Intolerance. This means that we are moving from the American story, the Civil War, to the story of humanity. Intolerance is a canvas as wide and as detailed, but it no longer has the focus of a family, well, two families. It no longer has the focus of one event, of one crucial decision in the history of the nation, and one crucial problem of reconciling the twin aspects of justice, conflict on the one hand and sacrifice on the other, and trying still to bind the nation's wounds. In this case, the question is humanity as such, and again, it has a certain connection to the problem of justice. Why are we still unhappy? Why cannot we do right? But this concern, this suffering opens to a fundamental problem. Is this the human condition? And why would we even think there is anything else? The question of intolerance is love. Love is what makes us think there might be something else than the misery we sometimes get used to, the sort of stuff that makes people scream at the TV or computer screen, the sort of stuff that breaks friendships in this crazy time of ours. Why? Why would you expect more than this? Love. Love gives you a vision that things might be perfect. Things might be as we fondly wish them to be. And the strength of love and the fact that it's not planned on both give us some evidence, some strange suggestion that it's not simply in our control. It may be a grander, possibly a cosmic or a historic force or indeed divine. This is therefore a perfectly natural step for Griffith to take. As an artist, he moves, as we say, by intuition, by inspiration. He reacts to events in his career, to the discoveries he makes making movies and seeing how they are received. But he also has a feel, of course, for the stories themselves and why they move this way. In a certain sense, the whole point of Birth of a Nation was that there must be some kind of love that uh, brings Americans together and gives them hope for the future. Here you see what that might mean on the broadest possible stage, what love would have to be to be all-encompassing and therefore to reconcile people to their situation now, since intolerance deals with the situation as it was in America in the teens, in the early 20th century, in the modern age, the industrial age, a transformed country. And of course, this is again a question now, since America is again roiled and again transforming, and there's another oligarchy like the oligarchy in the movie, there's another industry like the industry in the movie, there's more social unrest like in the movie. It's in a way ours, but in a way it's just America's. It was so in Griffith's time as well. This is my introduction to the problem of intolerance, the question of love and the need to think about humanity. And with this, Eric, I pass it on to you. Please introduce yourself to our audience again. You are not just the man with the music, you are the man with the scholarship on silent cinema. And as always, I have to say thank you for pushing me to do this. I am apt to get lazy about these things or to simply ask myself, can I really persuade anybody to care about D.W. Griffith again? But when I talk to you, I find the fire of conviction again. I loved watching this movie again staring at these things and trying to piece them together. So you have my gratitude. How are you doing? I am well, Titus. It's good to be in conversation with you again. And uh, thank you for collaborating with me on this exploration of silent film. Uh, As you said, it's the beginning of film. You know, my interest in silent film grew out of the uh, late night uh, PBS broadcasts when I was a child. Um, and you know, I, I pursued an academic career uh, in history and literature uh, with a sidebar in music. It was my avocation, but it became my, uh, at least half of my profession throughout my entire adult life. So I'm a church organist, a classically trained musician. And uh, in about the year 2005, I got interested, deeply interested again in the question of silent film from research I had done uh, academically in college and turn back to the problem, but turn back to it as a practical musician, uh, as well as someone who wanted to uh, take these films to other people. I was working at a church in Pennsylvania, 
and, uh, and we decided to do a sort of Mardi Gras uh, community, something to give to the community. It was a very wonderful Lutheran church, St. John's in Catanning, Pennsylvania. And they had a tradition of doing things for the community um, that were not necessarily directly religious, but just as a thank you for, for the way that a church does abide and exist uh, in a group of people who, and among them and for them. And so we decided for Mardi Gras to do a live silent film with organ. And from that, it grew into orchestra. And uh, so I began doing quite a bit of research following uh, some great scholars and some great performers who've been very helpful to me. And I can never thank them enough. People like David Shepard and Rodney Sauer, um, especially were very kind to me at that time to help me get started. And since then, I've worked a lot with the University of Pittsburgh. At uh, They have a collection of silent film music from a Polish refugee from World War I who came to Pittsburgh and uh, became a national traveling uh, arranger and orchestra conductor. His name is Nek Mirski. And so I, I've helped them with that archive and got to know it intimately. So, um, and I've had at least one of my, one film score now has been released on DVD and Blu-ray. And that's my film for Timothy's Quest performed by the Mont Alto uh, Picture Orchestra under direction of Rodney Sauer. So, yeah, I, I love silent film. I think it connects with people. I'm getting ready. We just got our first post-COVID uh, program lined up with orchestra for the fall. We're going to be doing Buster Keaton's Our Hospitality with live orchestra, and I'm in the process of preparing a new score for that. So, you know, when you get an audience to watch a silent film with live music, it's it's a totally different experience than any other um, contemporary art form and uh, well worth the time and effort to seek out such a show. So we talked last time about um, A Birth of a Nation. And, you know, the more I, I watch Griffith now, re-watching him, having taken a break from him for several years, I am always freshly impressed. And it's interesting, two very different uh, people who love film, uh, David Shepard and Armand White, have both said uh, that Intolerance is the greatest film ever. And I would have probably cocked a snoot at that 10, 15, 20 years ago, but having just rewatched Intolerance several times uh, to prepare for this discussion, I'm like, you know, I think, I think they may just be right. If not the greatest film, it's certainly one of the great films. And David Shepard is a great Hollywood preservationist. He ran Black Hawk Films, which did a lot to keep silent film alive for 40 years in the United States. He said that he watched it at least annually, and every time he watched it, he found new things in this film. And I think that speaks well of it. If you're going to watch it, and our goal is that you will watch these films, not just listen to us yammer on about them. And David Shepard had his own reconstruction of the 1916, as close as one could get. But the version he recommended was not his own, which I thought was also very typical and generous of that man. He recommended the Cohen Media version, which I also endorse. It's a beautiful restoration. It has a full orchestral score uh, by Carl Davis, and it's available on Blu-ray. And it is the version to watch. So what is Intolerance? Well, Intolerance is a strange film. Uh, there's never been a film I don't think quite like it, um, except maybe Buster Keaton's Three Ages parody of it. But uh, Intolerance is a unique film. It's often been compared to a fugue. Those of you familiar with classical music, a fugue is a composition where you have multiple voices, usually four, which intermingle and intertwine with each other with variation in between. And I think that's an excellent and a very apt comparison, trying to find an analogy for what Griffith was trying to achieve. He tells four different stories simultaneously in four very different historical periods. And on the surface, it's a little bit difficult to understand what really unites these stories. Now, the title of the film is Intolerance. And I think if you're, if you're not careful, you can and it becomes romantic love and prejudice or intolerance. So that, 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 that's, that's pretty easy to pick up on. But I think Griffith is doing a lot more than that. But we'll get into that later. So Griffith takes these four narratives. He interweaves them in such a way. He has a little linking uh, vignette that he uses Lillian Gish and she's rocking a cradle. And in the background are three old crone figures representing the fates. And of course, he's riffing on a, a line that would have once been familiar to almost all Americans by Walt Whitman from the cradle, right, things are born and take their shape, but how they develop, you know, there are fates beyond those, our controls also at work in this, in this life. And this little vignette sort of ties these pieces together. I'm going to talk about each plot strand individually, 
But Griffith begins with a modern tale. In fact, the story was already underway as he was working on Birth of a Nation, and it was originally intended to be entitled The Mother and the Law, which is a god-awful title. It sounds like it's some sort of going to be some sort of comedy, right, about mother-in-laws or something, but it's not. The Mother-in-Law is set in 1915 when the film was being prepared, and it's a story of labor unrest in an unspecified Western American city. You could think of someplace like Boulder, Colorado, or uh, there were a lot of mining strikes in uh, Montana at that time, uh, as well as places like Western Pennsylvania, West Virginia, and Kentucky. So, you know, it says Western, and the setting does seem to be more toward the Rocky Mountains, West Coast. We have a family, we piece together from clues that they are uh, of Irish descent, it's a father and a daughter, no mother, we assume she's deceased, and they live in this company town, and the young girl is very innocent, so the father's hardworking, uh, he goes to work, there's an, a, a young man and a young woman who also live in the same neighborhood that know each other, and what we get is a depiction of working class people who know each other, work hard, suffer together, but make the best they can. I mean, the home is shot with uh, loving details. There's a kitchen garden and there's chickens and ducks, and there's a sort of domesticity and even a little bucolic uh, pastoral element that these people have been able to carve out even in this company town. The owner of the mill has a sister who is a spinster and unattractive. And the result of this is that she's looking for someplace to find fulfillment because she is past her prime and is now ignored. The family that runs the mill at Jenkins, they may be modeled after uh, John D. Rockefeller and the foundation that he set up. So this spinster wealthy sister decides that she's going to improve the morals of the working class. And she sets up a foundation to do this and draws into her orbit the other wealthy socialite women. In order to pay for it, she has to go to her wealthy industrialist brother, who in order to bankroll this society, cuts wages 10% at his factories, which kicks off a strike. Troops are called in, private detectives are called in. The working class Irish father participates. So does his friend and his son. The son's father is killed, shot in the ensuing riots and disturbances. And the workers are expelled. Scab laborers are brought in to take their place. Everybody in this sort of tight-knit community has broken up and drifts into urban slums looking for any work they can find. And in this, we see the degradation of these people. These proud working-class people are reduced by poverty. The young man falls into crime. The young woman who was a neighbor ends up being a courtesan, prostitute-like figure to a local kingpin underworld criminal figure. He's called the musketeer. May Marsh, who plays the daughter, loses her innocence, uh, not intentionally, she doesn't, but she begins to imitate the women of the night that inhabit this corner of the world. Later, the young man falls in love with May Marsh. Her father makes her promise that she will never, you know, be unchaste and it, it, you know, will not take up with a man until she's married. He dies from overwork and stress. And eventually the couple gets together and the girl wants him to renounce his criminal ways. When he does that, he is framed for criminal activity by the mob boss he has worked for, trying to get out of this. Eventually they have a child. These reforming women take the child away. You know, they just one catastrophe after another is piled upon these poor people who are trying to bring some equilibrium to their lives. Finally, the boy comes home home from jail, discovers that the child is gone, decides to go back to a life of crime. The vampish, you know, former neighbor is jealous. The crime boss tries to seduce and then rape May Marsh. In the process, he's murdered by the woman. The husband is framed for the crime and off to the gallows he goes. And we'll come back to the ending. And that's an unrelenting tragedy, but it's done with the Griffith touch, right? So it's a beautiful film, right? So that's the largest, most important film, except for the grander segment in Babylon. So the next film segment is the story of Belshazzar as Prince of Babylon. And Belshazzar is depicted as a rather decadent man who's decided to introduce into Babylon the worship of the goddess Ishtar. And this has set up a political problem with the priests of Marduk, titular head deity in, in Babylon. And so the high priests are angry at him, and they've decided to betray him to the Persians who are on their way to attack. The Persians initially laid siege to the city of Babylon, which causes Belshazzar to get up off his love couch and stop being this decadent playboy. But he turns out he's also an effective monarch in some ways, and there's a grand heroic military struggle for the walls of Babylon. The Persians are repulsed, the city is saved, 
Uh, the Babylonians go crazy and they throw a literal orgy and celebration. And in the background of this, we have another love story. And you can see the layering, I mean, just gets deeper and deeper in this. There's a young girl who's come down from the mountains. She's a wild girl of the mountains. It's very naturalistic, uninhibited figure. And there's a young poet. He's called the Rhapsode. He's a follower of God Marduk. And uh, he falls in love with her, but he's kind of a sissy boy and she rejects him. She ends up in a marriage market, and it is Belshazzar that redeems her and gives her her freedom. And so she becomes deeply attached to the prince of Babylon. She discovers that the priests are about to betray the city, so she gets into a chariot, disguises herself as a male warrior, which she's already done. She's already fought on the walls of Babylon pursues the priests, eavesdrops, figures out what's happening. The Persians are coming back and the priests are going to betray the city, open the gates and let them in. She comes back to warn Belshazzar and try to rally everybody at the last minute. But of course, they're in the final throes of this orgiastic celebration of their premature victory uh, and the city of Babylon falls. And then we have two very short segments that are continually woven into the plot. One is a story of the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre under Catherine de' Medici in France and the murder of the Protestant Huguenots. And this is told very simply. The Catholic religion is used as a front for power. We see depictions of both Protestants and Catholics showing a certain amount of uh, intolerance to each other and uh, the desire for revenge on the leading part of Catherine. The other members of the French court are depicted as pretty effete and you know enthralled to this woman. They're happy to go along with it, some of them, but this is probably the least developed of the stories in some way. Uh, the Huguenot family, we see the daughter being pursued, and that's pretty much it. The young man who's in love with her ends up trying to rescue her at the last minute during the massacre and, and fails. And then lastly, we have a series, no more than vignettes, it's not really even a coherent plot, but we have a series of vignettes taken from the Gospels of the Life of Christ leading up to his crucifixion. So these are the four very different strands, and the two that get the most attention from the filmmaker are the Mother and the Law segment, the modern story, and with great pomp and circumstance, the Babylonian segment. Well, when Griffith prepared the film, his crews had no idea what was going on, which was a typical strategy. Only Griffith in a tiny inner circle ever sort of knew what was going on. And Griffith liked to keep a sense of competition among his subordinates uh, and keep them guessing to a certain extent, uh, which made them want to produce their best work, but also made them very willing to leave him at some points. Before we get into the analysis of those plot strands, I just want to set up the historical framing for what's going on with Griffith and his production company. So after the success of the birth of the nation, he knew that he had to top it. And how do you top the Civil War, right? And so Griffith turned his attention again to history. His earlier career at Biograph, a lot of his films were centered on very, very topical vignettes of urban and American political and social life. And so Griffith kind of brings these two strands of his career, his Biograph career and his love for history and poetry together. And, you know, building off the Civil War, you know, what can you do? What's more, what's, what's more destructive than the loss of Atlanta in the Civil War? Well, we'll burn Babylon down. I guess Rome would have been the other choice. But Babylon has a little bit more, I guess, uh, cultural punch to it in some ways. I mean, this is still a very religious America where everyone would have known you know, Babylon, you know, Babylon, you know, you know, the mightiest fallen. And, and the recurrence of Babylon also in the Book of Revelations, you know, just in the Old Testament. But in 1915, Griffith is on top of the world, raking in money, uh, hand over fist. Every banker and stockbroker in New York City wants to invest in his production company. He actually has three production companies running at the same time. And Griffith was, in some ways, a very humble man. He liked good cars, good clothes, and good food. But beyond that, he didn't live particularly ostentatiously. And he was supporting a raft of relatives back in Kentucky, including his mother, who had died that year as well. But one of the things that had strung Griffith out emotionally and stung him very greatly was the racial issues that the birth of a nation brought up. Griffith felt that he was being unjustly condemned, and he took it as a personal affront. And to some extent, he toyed with some way in which he wanted to get back at his critics, who he felt were being intolerant, and that they were not letting a poet, an artist, speak and so Griffith began to take this idea of taking these different stories, one that was already in production, but now seemed too small to follow the birth of a nation, and trying to find a way to weave these together. And of course, we're also in the midst of World War I. Griffith was pretty much a pacifist, although he was going to have a change of heart when he goes to Europe in 1916, 17. 
So Griffith is looking for a vehicle to develop these ideas. And at the same time, he was influenced by a film, Cabiria, which was an Italian production, which he saw during the production, the final stages of the production of The Birth of a Nation. Cabiria is an Italian epic, and it's a story of the Punic Wars and the destruction of Carthage, the Third Punic War. It was a very well-made film, and it was doing something that he had not really seen done by Americans. And so this is where the idea of the whole Babylon segment comes from. He also, Griffith was very much about research, but he was never constrained by reality. He wanted to know whatever the latest historical research was on Babylon. He had his production team made up a giant scrapbook cut out of encyclopedias and scholarly articles and art reference works and scholarly books on the ancient Near East. But he was never constrained by reality. And so in the preparation for the mother and the law, the contemporary political social commentary segment, he went down to look at the prisons in San Francisco and at San Quentin. While there in 1915 doing that research, there was also the San Francisco Exposition, which had a huge series of displays of sort of fantasy, Middle Eastern, ancient Orientalia. And so that probably also fed into this. So he's, he's very you know, alive to ideas that are floating around. He had a pious Methodist upbringing, even though he was not particularly a religious man and sort of concocted his own sort of spirituality. But he certainly knew his Bible and he knew his American Sunday school material. If you're going to read a book about Griffith and you want one that's entertaining, I recommend Carl Brown, who is a photographer, a teenage photographer, uh, learning the ropes on both A Birth of a Nation and Intolerance. He wrote a great memoir. And one of the things he says in there was that Griffith, when it came to the biblical scenes with the life of Christ, they look like the typical sort of wood engravings and steel plate engravings you'd have seen in the American Sunday School magazine in the 1890s. They knew that they were historically inaccurate, but Griffith supposedly said something like, well, everybody knows what the Bible looks like, so we're going to give them what they know. And for the Babylon, it seems sort of the same thing. So Griffith brings all of these things together and trying to top his former success. Carl Briel was hired to produce another full orchestral score. It was given the roadshow treatment, launched at Clunes in, in Los Angeles, and then taken to New York City. And at first, audiences flocked to see it. And uh, one of the myths that is it lost money, it did not lose money. The production ended being fully paid for. Griffith did have to borrow some money to achieve that, but the film was launched completely paid for. And it made money initially. But after about a month, ticket sales began to slide. Part of it was the audiences didn't know what to make of all of this. Constantly, the film cuts back and forth between these four stories. Some of the scenes are very short. Some of it was very familiar to audiences, like the story of Jesus, but others, the story of the Huguenots, you know, a lot of Americans would have been relatively unfamiliar with it. Critics didn't know quite what to make of the film either. Some saw it as a natural evolution of filmmaking. Others saw it as a bizarre mishmash. And Griffith's plea for tolerance and for peace came just as Americans were turning in their opinion against the German Empire and marching steadily towards war in World War I. Interestingly, its message kind of fell flat as well, because the film finally ends with a battlefield that's transformed uh, into sort of a paradise and a sort of second coming of Christ. The sword will be beaten into the plowshare and the lion will lay down with the lamb and lots of little children and flowers growing out of cannons. Griffith manages not to be maudlin, but sentimental finale. And yet, I said earlier, you know, in the modern sequence, the husband's on his way to the gallows. And of course, Griffith gives us one of his great chase sequences here, where the woman, finally overcome by guilt, admits that she killed the criminal kingpin and that she doesn't want people to go to jail. And then they have to convince the governor and the governor has to get a hold of the people at the prison and the prison has to stop the execution at the last moment. And there's a great race between an automobile and a speeding express train to cut off and get the governor. And then they have to race to the prison after they get the governor to stop and call off the execution. There are two other chase scenes in the film that both end in disaster, both the Huguenot and the Babylonian chase. So Griffith, in some ways, subverted some of his typical tropes that he had developed in his biograph work. And everything in the film, though, is done exquisitely. He and his production company were working with unlimited budget, pretty much carte blanche to do what they wished. Griffith did everything that he could to make every moment of the film gorgeous. Many, many of the scenes of the film are based on 19th century historical genre paintings depicting the events. And yet audiences, as I said, were a bit overwhelmed. When the film moved to London in 1917, you'd think, okay, this is a plea for tolerance. British critics interpreted the film as a condemnation of German atrocities and German-Prussian barbarism. So it had an interesting way of being transformed in their minds, I, as instead of a plea for general intolerance of plea, well, we're fighting this war to bring about a world like this. 
So I hope I hope that that was something you can follow along. And if you go to see the film, you can sort of tease out all the pieces. Yeah, we, when we talk about this, we have to talk about the four different stories and try to show how they compare. But when you see it, he cuts back and forth. And so the movie has a momentum that belongs to cinema. The building effect, not just your awareness of historical tragedies and the question, is America going to end up the same way that looms over this story of ordinary people, of working class people, of uh, city slums, of oligarchs and their cruelty? Is it going to happen all over again, so to speak? It's not just this question, it's the emotional build-up, it's the montage and the music, and at the same time, the notion that maybe there's something in this ordinary situation that speaks to the ages, and maybe somehow what we learn from the ages should make us think about things differently. You could say that this is the strange ambiguity of intolerance. Is Griffith trying to tell you that in this ordinary working class family that has fallen on hard times and society is quite heedless of the suffering of the poor, in this you will find a great love, a great trouble like in Belshazzar's Babylon? Do you somehow need world history, let's call it, to illuminate or to take seriously the American situation? It's America, you just go on with life. It's not a big deal. Don't make a big deal of it. And then Griffith comes along and suggests that you have to make a big deal of it. You have to look at this somehow humanity and therefore the historical troubles through the ages. Indeed, the subtitle of Intolerance is A Sun Play for the Ages. It's a sun play, and I take that to mean that enlightenment should be maybe loving is the word for it or caring. Yeah, I think that uh, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a steady contrast in the film uh, between love and its connection to enlightenment and also two things, I think historical forces, you know, and, but also there's the way those forces interact with law and religion. Um, and one of the early inner titles in the, the modern melodrama is, you know, we, we're going to pass laws to make people good, right? And, 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 so there is this issue between, you know, what's the situation in modern America? And it is, right? I, I think you're right, Titus. There was, a, there was a wide swath of the American public that had been raised, Griffith would have fallen into this in the late 19th century on universal history. I mean, uh, pretty much every home in America had a book entitled Universal History. This, and, and, you know, a tradition that goes all the way up to the Toynbean. Um, and the sense that, we can make these connections, right? We can make these connections between these different time periods to illuminate our own situation. Um, and, and Griffith does that repeatedly. And, I, and, and when I watched the film over and over again this, this summer and this fall, the thing that struck me were all the interesting little ways, very small ways and large ways that he tries to highlight these, these counterpoints, almost like in music where the melodies will fit together. Um, you know, we get the inner title about laws making people good, which is spoken by this socialite spinster who wants to control the working class, right? She can't enjoy life, so why should they get to enjoy life? And um, because her view of morality is that, you know, what they do is, is a waste, and we, we cut to the Pharisees uh, in this little vignette that where Christ does not appear directly, uh, but it's, you know, based on the statement, you know, make sure that when you pray, you pray in your closet, not in the street corners as the Pharisees do. And we get a Pharisee who goes into a Jewish working class neighborhood, interestingly, uh, if there's such a thing, uh, but, you know, he, in the first century, but, you know, Griffith is not thinking in those terms. And the, the Pharisee prays in the middle of the street. And we see a man at work with his drill bit. We see a man who's eating and enjoying his food, a rather comically, a grotesque comic clown moment. And we see a man carrying a heavy burden and they all must freeze and stop what they're doing. Uh, the man in mid-chew, the, the workman in mid-drill, the, the, the porter with his sack, right? And they all freeze out of fear of the social retribution will come of not, and, and perhaps also out of their own piety of, of interrupting this other man's prayer. When he's done, then finally that everyone sizes breathes a sigh of relief and they go back to work, go back to eating, whatever it happens to be. So both pleasures and labor are subordinated to those who have the economic freedom, right? The, the, the Pharisee is depicted as wealthy. And 
that he cannot indulge himself in his religious piety in a way that they cannot, that then he then forces them to stop in both their productivity and their recreation to make way for his piety. Um, and, and so, you know, we see all of these sort of uh, refractions and reflections across, across the four stories. Um, Griffith was also very politic and having had both a Catholic priest and a rabbi as consultants for the production uh, because he doesn't want to offend people and his inner titles make that clear. Now, Anita Luce um, actually was brought in to do the inner titles. Um, she had a long and productive career in Hollywood and, on, and, and, and uh, also to some extent at the uh, legitimate theater as well. But she does. She she did a lot of the, the intertidal writing, and you know it's sort of strange. We get these dramatic intertitles, but then they'll have historic footnotes underneath. Um, and you kind of imagine a modern audience, you know, in the middle of a, of a historical epic, if suddenly there were, if you know, there were little scrolling uh, footnotes across the bottom of this the screen today. But anyway, um, I, I find those kind of charming. But we do see this contrast then between the Mosaic Law and Christ, and we see. Uh, then we go to Catherine de Medici, and, and we see, again, we see religious hypocrisy. Again and again, that ends up being another theme, right? The women in the, in the 20th century story that run this anti-vice society um, are pious, uh, and, and, and piety, false piety, or misapplied piety becomes an issue. Um, we get the wedding at Cana, Christ's first miracle from the Gospel of John, um, but the way Griffith tells it, um, you know, he contrasts it to, to a certain extent with the working class wanting to go out on a Thursday night and, and just dance and have a few beers after work before they go to bed and go to work on Friday. And Mr. Jenkins uh, decides to go and see what all this hullabaloo is and goes down to the company town and sees his employees. And it's very interesting because Jenkins um, gets out of his car and walks up to this beer garden and you see a couple of rather attractive young uh, immigrant or working class girls there and they kind of start to flirt with him and he's like, Ugh, you know, very clear he's not interested in women and uh, they don't know what to make of him, but he sees a dime laying on the, the sidewalk and he picks it up and lovingly caresses it and cleans it and puts it in his pocket. Uh, and then comments that these people, it's 10 o'clock, they've got to get up for work tomorrow. Why aren't, why aren't they in bed? Um, and, you know, this sort of, pushes him further into his sister's arms, you know, and to you know, use law as a force to constrain people. And um, Griffith rightly predicts that, hey, if you take the simple pleasures of the working class away, especially alcohol, you're just gonna make things worse. There's a great scene where um, people begin making alcoholic hooch in their basement as a prediction of what's gonna happen. Of course, that's exactly what did happen with prohibition. Um, but. So historical forces at work, sure, Griffith sees it with uh, Christ giving wine uh, to people who are already a little bit tipsy at the wedding in Cana, which is, a, which is not explicit in the gospel, but it's actually implied. I and mean, if you look at the text, now this, the, the, the bridegroom says, you know, everybody always gives the cheap wine last, but you've saved the best line, you know, once everyone's drunk, but you've saved the best line now, which implies that the people at the wedding are already a little, uh, a couple of sheets to the wind. And, um, and yet, in the same moment where Christ kind of comes off a little bit like Jesus, the party animal, sort of, you know, uh, you know, because he's with the people, the disreputable members of society. At the same moment, Griffith gets something very right. He, the, suddenly we get the, the uh, outline of the shadow, or not the shadow, but in light, the cross appears on Christ as he turns the water into wine. Or at least he doesn't actually, I don't think we actually see it. He just gives the instructions to the steward to, to do so at that point. But, it, you know, if you go back and read your early commentaries from the other Christian church, and even later, there's this connection between the sacramental aspect of what's happening here and the later sacrifice on the cross. Now, I mean, Griffith, either through scholarship or maybe the priest advised him, or maybe just intuition, puts all of those things together. And again, so we get this strange, tremendous span of time and span of culture, but Griffith sees them as analogous. Yeah, that's the other element of this ambiguity. As we said, is it that if you look at American ordinary life, you're going to somehow find these amazing, great catastrophes of history, something on the scale of the fall of Babylon, 
Or is it the other way around that you should think about the Jerusalem of the Gospels, you should think about the Babylon, well, I guess, of Daniel, you should think about the great religious strife of early modern Europe to somehow understand America. So it's not clear exactly which way he is pulling. This is an ambiguity that, of course, is always involved in America. America is in some sense an enlightenment nation. Education is a great deal in American life, whether it's the formation of the elites or, of course, the all-American pursuit of lifelong education. And does that mean that uh, if you get yourself an education, you'll understand something in American life that is of the rank of what a great education offers? Or on the other hand, that with such an education, you can improve American life. It's ambiguous. Americans would like to have it both ways, so to speak. Get something of the grandeur of history, but not the catastrophe. America should be above history, but also somehow connected to histories, that is to say, to war, to strife, to great betrayals and great deceptions, great suffering, and uh, the end of civilization again and again and again. That's the ambiguity Griffith gets at. He seems to suggest uh, Americans have it right. In America, the great catastrophe does not happen. In America, tragedy can be averted. There is a kind of truth-telling and a kind of forgiveness that works in America that doesn't in other cases. America is not a land like the mutual and massacres of the Protestants, the Catholics in France in the 16th century, to say nothing of these other older stories. And yet, there is a kind of conflict in America. There is a kind of threatening catastrophe, that is to say... America has some kind of advantage, but also a certain threat. It's indeed not just the story of this young lady and the young man she falls in love with, and they get married and they want to have a family, even if their life is quite precarious. There is, as you say, the great question of social strife, of moralistic elites, of oligarchic elites that put money above the concerns of community, of festivals, of the joy that uh, keeps people going, gives them some evidence of the, the good things in this world. And so that could turn to something terrible, that could lead to something that you can't, so to speak, walk back from. The story of modern America seems to suggest well, you know, you might have Pinkertons or troops shoot on workers, you might have. Fathers die of hard work, leaving their daughters behind. Who knows what will happen to them? But if it comes to this, that this young man is trying to reform and this young woman has a child and the child is stolen from her by these moralistic women and the authority of the state and the man is executed, then America is over. There has got to be some kind of forgiveness. There's got to be some kind of charity offered to the poor and needy or else America is no longer America. Social strife is, uh, maybe it's inevitable. America isn't Babylon, but human injustice and suffering is still what it is. But you can't push it that far. You can't deny certain requirements. We say that there's a minimum level that America must defend in terms of forgiveness and charity, or else Americans cease being Americans. And you could say perhaps history will repeat itself. Perhaps these catastrophes of other ages, of other ways of life will repeat He's very sentimental, you say, but suggests he's far less biased in favor of America than he seems. Yes, I would agree with that. So much of the story is, there is drama in America. Well, it's just this lady and then it's just the young lady. I don't really want anything bad to happen to her, but why do I really care about this? Somehow, that's the point that Americans have to care. You have to worry about the fate of the poor and the needy because without it, America will turn into a rut that you can already see, so to speak. You can see it from this sort of history. And so you could say he is, on the one hand, offering Americans this view of the great splendor of the past, which doesn't exist in America, but on the other hand, also warning people about the great cruelties of that splendid past that might return to America. It's interesting because we're going to step in, just think about a moment of set design. And so, of course, the, the film is most famous for its Babylon set, with we have this sort of imperial courtyard uh, that's filmed. But the only set that, uh, that approaches it in grandeur, uh, and it's not the, the set of uh, the French court, it's actually the plutocrat's ballroom. It's the only other place that seems to ape that kind of space. And at least in Babylon, right, that, that dramatic 
um, palace is available to all the Babylonians. Whereas in America, the plutocrats, their space is for themselves only. And we get this other moment where uh, Jenkins uh, is seated at his desk in his office. And his office is this vast empty space with the desk dead center. And I couldn't help but thinking of the recent Dune film. Uh, uh, and uh, the one thing that I, well, one of the things I didn't like about it was that I felt that the spaces for the Atreides family were not lived in, but I thought it was an interesting parallel. Here's, here is Jenkins alone in his space, which is obviously not lived in, and at parallel, Jenkins himself takes no real pleasure in the ball at, the, at this, you know, palatial residence of his own. Uh, his place is in the office, which is equally palatial, but equally empty. Um, and, and, and the thing that struck me, both as you were just speaking and as I watched it, was the timeliness of this film from 1916. I felt it really could have been filmed in some ways just a few weeks or months ago, uh, that there is a sense in which uh, an oligarchic tendency, right, requires us to pay attention to the needs of other citizens and, uh, within our own republic. Um, and and, and the, I think the sentimentality that Griffith has is very different than say Chaplin's sentimentality about the poor, um, is that Griffith in this film, um, the sentimentality is not in, in a, a mean, it's a means to an end. It's not there of its own, on its own existing in a vacuum. Uh, I think that's true for Chaplin too, but I think Griffith does it better. Um, he's, you know, if you think about Charlie Chaplin's The Kid, for example, which has a lot of the similar overtones going on. Um, uh, it doesn't, the Chaplin's characters almost exist in a vacuum. Uh, in their poverty. Um, when we see the rich, they're completely disconnected. So there's that, unless they come in a sort of uh, savior at the end, the, the deus ex machina-like. And, and for Griffith, it's more complicated than that. The, the rich and the poor are intertwined throughout his story. Um, and the, the mechanism that springs the boy from his impending execution, like you said, America is the one place where the story can have a happy ending. Is is it's a it's a beat cop, and the neighbors who have been charitable, other poor neighbors, and the beat cop. The beat cop is, looks beyond the surface. Uh, the other detectives that are brought in to the crime scene assume that the boy is guilty, uh, but the boy is not guilty, and it is the beat cop who knows these people who 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 has a hard time reconciling that, and he's the one that begins to piece this clue, the clues together, and he's the one that leads the girl who sort of turned into a courtesan prostitute to confess. Um, and, and the assumption is if we can get to the governor, that is that is the, the duly you know, democratically elected officer, then justice can be done. And at first that's difficult, but persistence allows it, persistence in technology uh, allows the governor to be brought to heel when his train is stopped by the racing car that's put across the tracks. And once the governor hears things, he will respond. Um, in the Babylon segment, you know, when uh, the wild girl of the mountain uh, knows about the plot, she, she cannot get through to Belshazzar, right? There's, there's no democratic pathway for her. There's no way that she can get through to Belshazzar, even though she has donned man's armor and fought uh, on the walls of Babylon, right? She doesn't, she, she cannot get to the prince. Um, and, and catastrophe unfolds. In the, in the, in the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, um, uh, Brown Eyes is the, is the female and, and her lover cannot get through, right? Um, but in America, there's democracy. Democracy means people can get through to the, to the engines of power and, and perhaps have a chance, you know, as you said, with forgiveness uh, to uh, achieve something and to to stop the intolerance and the injustice. But it's a nip and tuck thing. Yeah, I mean, this wonderful car chase also has, of course, this symbolism to it, that a kind of catastrophe is coming like a train rolling down the line. Something has got to cut across and risk obliteration on those train tracks. The inevitable somehow has to be stopped. The rut of, of history, somehow Americans have to get out of that rut. 
that's part of what made Griffith such a remarkably successful artist. He understood that Americans would immediately respond to this. His sentimentality corresponds to the hope and the frustration in each American heart when people think, I got to get out of this mess. I got to somehow do better. There's got to be more out there than this. It can't all just be misery or failure or injustice. As we spoke about this great tension, in one sense, the fundamental things that one would see in ancient stories have to be understood as equivalent to the ordinary life of an American. That's presumptuous, to say the least. But in another sense, Americans have to learn from history in order to make America better. It's part of Griffith's modesty in a way and ambition in another way. Modesty is an American, ambition as a poet, as an educator. If America really were so good that, uh, yeah, uh, tragedy doesn't happen here or tragedy won't win, so to speak, catastrophe will not present to America, you don't need to bother to make a movie. You can just be reassured. The movie is an attempt to help Americans be more forgiving, less cruel, and also be more active, less indifferent or less cowed by events. And so you begin to see why, for emotional reasons, you need other stories than something of what happens in American slum. It's not as moving as it might be. Now, the Palace of Belshazzar and the Fall of Babylon filmed with these amazing siege scenes. War by night, it's fires and darkness and these siege engines and, and striving men. And so it's amazing. That will get attention. Yeah, so, I mean... It- It's it's just on a bigger scale in a way. It just has a grandeur that Americans need. That is to say, to tell people that the love of this young lady and the moral struggle of this young man to become decent, a father, legal, they need a kind of heroism to add up for the audience to look at themselves, at each other, as though they could help each other. That's part of a sophistication that people do not see in Griffith because they think him sentimental or perhaps too popular. He is not a moron, nor is he somebody who just plays on the sentiments of the audience. He is aware of what Americans are like and what they are looking for. As you say, this is a movie with historical footnotes. Yes, because he understands that Americans are not sophisticated people, and therefore they're not uh, you know, suspicious of each other. Say, well, I can't admit that I don't know this and ask what it might be or appreciate if somebody explains to me what's happening here, because I got to look so smart and can never really learn that kind of sophisticated ignorance. He says, well, this is not the American way. In America, people ask. They're just saying in your face, well, I don't know what this is. I'll ask, like, how do you spell that? That's the American way. And therefore, yeah, you get footnotes in this movie. All of these things are, are, are his suggestions that this is American character, it's the American way, and you should go with it. It's not a bad thing. It's These people will see. What does Belshazzar matter to me? Well, watch the movie. You will see. He trusts the American audience in a way artists no longer do. And you get to see then why he has an ambition as an educator. It's not just the success of his movies or the career and simply the expertise of craft of having made so many hundreds of shorts. It's that when he puts together a vision of such a long movie with all these different stories, he already sees it from the point of view of the audience. That's how he can key it emotionally and bind it thematically, even if there are not story elements exactly that would unify it, even if it's not told in sequence. With all of these things, he sees people will understand this because they will feel in a certain way as Democrats we always like to identify with other people's experiences and are curious about them. But in another way, we in other people's stories begin to take seriously our own drama. We begin to say that, yes, some of these thoughts, some of these troubles, some of these worries of a national, of historical, even of a cosmic or divine character, it worries us too. But somebody has to give it the right scope and maybe make it encouraging in a certain way. So the story of love through the ages is also a story of intolerance. Our hopes can never quite escape the knowledge that all human community is full of suffering and injustice of trouble that does not seem to have an obvious answer. That the world is hard, people could accept. You might work your fingers to the bone and still not make it. People, I think, would understand that this world is not all that friendly to our efforts. But why should people add to the strife that is already in the world? That's, you could say, something that he's trying to get at, partly, I suppose, because especially in America, it's a rational society, it's a democratic society, people are supposed to be educated, educated about their rights, educated about other people's rights, and possibly agreed about the justice of equality. Why should people be so cruel to each other? Why should people be so callous to each other's suffering? Inequality 
how can they find themselves so alone or indifferent or unable to concert their actions? Why should Democrats or people who are equal or the same be so lonely? Isn't there strength in numbers? Maybe people will not find the heroic strength to act on the one hand. And on the other hand, maybe it's precisely the democratic character that makes people feel their weakness. After all, to say there's strength in numbers, implying there is great weakness in not having the numbers on your side. Each man who falls through the cracks, as we say, suggests that maybe there's an entire continental democracy out there that doesn't care about you, that they're getting on with life. Works for them, and if it doesn't work for you, tough. There's a terrible vulnerability. And in, in a certain way, that's what the movie is trying to get at. It. Uh, ordinary life in America does not compare with the greatness of great ages. But if you look at the suffering that makes a man despair in America, despair of justice or of his fellow Americans, you see emotions that show that he does take himself with a strange seriousness as an individual somehow in the fulcrum of history, that this is where everything is decided about justice. And then, of course, in a way through the story, this shows, you could call it, if you wish to be pompous, the historical development of individual consciousness, making human self-importance into a principle of justice or of social organization and of economic progress and so on and so forth. It's not that the girl and the boy on screen are that important. They're largely presented as fragile. They're largely presented as dear, not particularly impressive. It's that the audience will react thinking, but why should life happen to us this way? Why should we be victims of historical or cosmic trouble? Why should some injustice cripple us? Why is man's nature not good? That's what the sentimental pull of the story with its montages and its switches and its repetitions, its food-like character where a melody or a fragment plays again and again in different moods, works on the audience. And this very sentimental movie turns out to have quite some thinking behind it. It's the work of a poet who has paid attention to America, has shared in the national passion, and tries to bring it to a good purpose, right? to show people what it's like to suffer as an American without making it worse or making people despair or what have you, trying to give them a certain historical grandeur on the one hand. On the other hand, some hope that they can share in this. You don't have to go to it alone after all. There's everybody else in the theater and in the nation. Yeah. And you see, I think you really see this quite well in the trial scene where the boy is on trial um, uh, for robbery that he, he's been set up for. And uh, Mae Marsh, who's playing the, the, the girl, the mother figure, you know, the very famous uh, series of, of medium close-ups of her face and expressions as she sort of picks at her fingers as she watches this injustice unfold. And, you know, this 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 issue of democracy and and the fact that people are alone i mean at the beginning where we have the the, the striking you know if if numbers is what matters why are the strikers the ones who are defeated right they have the numbers and griffith understands that these things um don't necessarily align and yeah you know we, we talked about in the birth of a nation that really he is an educator he sees the, the history and poetry as a tool of education but and, and it's, his, it's his ability to put himself in the seat of the theater goer when he designs and, and, and constructs the film that gives it its power. Um, you know, all great directors have that ability, but I think Griffith was, I mean, he's, he's the first one, I think, to really, really, really understand that psychological piece of the puzzle. When we contrast the other segments, there's a tension here too between the domestic and or the national or the international or the historical. Every one of these stories has to be laid out for the audience, except he knows his audience knows the passion narrative. It can be done with just the merest vignettes and montages. And just like Brown said, you know, the national, the domestic, and the cosmic are all brought to bear here. It's not just the historical, but it's also the cosmic. There's always been a kind of a paradox at the center of the Christian story, right? Christ has to suffer cosmically to liberate everybody else from suffering. I think Griffith knows this and he plays on this. And so that the, you know, the trial of Jesus becomes the trial of this young guy who has been a hoodlum. I mean, he's not innocent. He's certainly been guilty of things. He's just not guilty in this particular case. And finally, when he seeks redemption, right, this is a great scene where Maymarsh teaches him to pray. You wouldn't know what religion they were until there's one moment where there's a statue of the Virgin and Child. The Catholic details of this family are played very lightly, which makes sense. It's a majority Protestant country at the time. 
But regardless, there's a sense in which the purity of her religion is the first stepping stone to pull him out of his own criminal background and to set him on the road to redemption. It does. It becomes cosmic. This is parallel out with the woman taken in adultery, you know, on Christ's passion. I mean, that's sort of the ultimate democracy of Christianity is that everybody matters to God the same. And the final piece of that puzzle is we then get all these religious hypocrisies as the opposite possibility. The Protestants are going to suffer under the hands of the Catholics because Griffith shows them rioting and murdering as well. And the priests of Belmarduk are hypocrites, you know, and they take someone like the Rhapsode, who's a sincere believer, but they use him as a tool. And that fits in with the earlier depiction of the Pharisees we see. So and Griffith at the end shows this modern battlefield where the angels come down and bring an end to warfare. And, you know, the tragedy won't end in this life. Nobody gets out alive. But we can at least get a temporary reprieve like the boy at the scaffolds. So, yeah, modern life is very democratic. America especially is very democratic. Making the authorities out to be the bad guys is very popular. You could say that blaming the priests is also very popular since uh, you can have democracy and religion too. Who are they to be authorities? A kind of suspicion of people who set themselves up as important, as special, as above us is typical, of course, of our way of life. And so Griffith uses that to a great extent. We are not inclined to do justice to people who think themselves are betters, not least of all because we now and then suspect that they might be our betters and don't really want to deal with that. But underlying and in a way improving on our prejudices and our self-flattery or our self-defense at least, there's this suggestion that for religion to be true religion, it has to say human beings, because they are human, are special. The, the human drama does play in every heart. And therefore, you cannot have, especially religious, especially moral authorities, deny the humanity of ordinary people or of poor people, etc. You have to care for the widow and the orphan. A certain duty of justice, especially to the weakest, you could say, is essential to understanding religion, but also to the integrity of politics. After all, the fundamental aspect of justice, however much we have thrown it away, is the relationship between gratitude and generosity. And it's always easier to say why the grateful person should be grateful since he has received good things he needs from his weakness than it is to say why the generous person needs to be generous since all he gets is gratitude. Well, generous people are nevertheless human and they can see their own vulnerabilities in the people whose gratitude they incur. It is always damaging for everybody to look at other people as though they're not human. That leads to very dark thoughts. So even in this delightfully pagan society of Babylon, you see that Belshazzar saves a girl from a marriage market. This is not particularly wise judgment. The marriage markets were a very good idea. It's a part of the essence of justice too. Very pretty girls will fetch a great price. And that means that uh, there will be dowries to pay for the marriages of very plain girls also. Law their wishes to equalize, so to speak. But this is now how Griffith looks at it. He is not uh, so political. He doesn't care about this aspect of equality or law. What he wants to say is that Belshazzar, absolute despot, sees this girl and her humanity speaks to him. He knows what love is and it ain't that. And of course, in a way, it makes perfect sense. The most striking thing about Babylon or about pagans is that they were way more aware of the power of love than we are. It makes sense in that thematic way to bring out the fact that this great despot might nevertheless look at this young girl and understand why she doesn't want to be compelled. She is a natural mountain girl that speaks to a force of nature, after all, that escapes the boundaries of commerce, in this case, and acquisition. That also suggests this great man sees the need to do something for somebody who is nothing. How could you have duties to somebody who is nothing? Well, she's not nothing, after all. She's also a human being. A girl is no more, no less vulnerable to love than an emperor. So that again suggests that somehow in our love, we recognize our vulnerability and our equality in that sense, that we're all vulnerable in this way. But unlike the questions of justice, it's not so painful. It's hopeful. It doesn't end well for Belshazzar. And I mean, he was not a competent politician. He, he got exactly what he deserved. The, <laughs> But the point is not without merit. And of course, especially in our modern situation, this notion that you should always be careful of the relationship between gratitude and generosity that reminds you that other people are people too, 
that a needy person who has the power of gratitude is more human than he would be otherwise. And the generous person has the power of generosity is more human than he would be if he denied the claims that others have on him. And I think that's what uh, Griffith is trying to get at, that there must be some kind of power that's even greater than justice that does what justice does without involving so much punishment, without involving so much anger, something that is not as vulnerable to religious warfare or religious hypocrisy or the sort of moralistic despotism that is typical of modernist elites. So that's why he suggests that you shouldn't really leave it in the hands of religious authorities or moralistic authorities. Justice cannot be what woke is. Say it is simply because it is this elitism of woke capital or woke elite institutions. These people do not have the best interests of ordinary people, much less the least among us, at heart. And in a way, it's because they don't really have hearts. They do not see themselves connected to the suffering of those who suffer. They could never quite be merciful because they can never think of themselves as in need of mercy. This is why Griffith thinks that you need a great emotional pull. You don't need too much to bring these stories together. The emotional pull will do it. But that is also what's needed for the audience, so to speak, to wake up, to notice these things, to not be either indifferent or defeated, to find some kind of human connection that spurs to action. And it had better be something loving, because otherwise it's going to be strikers, it's going to be labor strife, it's going to be social catastrophe. If we come to make this a matter of justice, we will come to make it a matter of blame, of punishment, and we'll hate each other, is what he seems to be suggesting. This may be taking it too far, but of course, as Christians, we always have this temptation to say it's either heaven or hell, it's the apocalypse, we either get the good news or it's going to be horrifying. We'd say we're in a hurry. And that is because with the passions of the heart comes the urgency of our mortality. We would like a judgment now. At some level, even if it's a catastrophe, we would like it to happen. So even though I, I can't subscribe to Griffith's sentiments, I think there is a great power in his movie that has to do with his understanding of the democratic troubles and of the need to establish, in a way, democracy on a more powerful basis that people should look at each other as human beings and therefore with love, because only then will they be, in a way you could say, defended from despair. If there is something that is stronger than punitive justice, then people in liking each other can like themselves. There can be a love of life out of democracy, hence calling it a sun play. He's trying, you know, say like, there's a lot of catastrophe in this movie. What are we talking about here, DW? Uh, <laughs> there's supposed to be something hopeful there. Yeah. And I think that each story in its own way has hope misapplied, but two of the stories imply the ultimate hope, which is that there's an ultimate hope in America if we can reorder ourselves in, the, in our current circumstances, and that there's ultimately a cosmic hope that we may have to rely upon to carry us through in the meantime. And I hope that people will take a look at the film. Griffith would go on from this in 1916 to make a, a propaganda film, The Hearts of the World, which ordinary lives again become, you know, this is this is a recurring pattern from that the ordinary becomes a prism through which to see the cosmic or the international or the historical. He can see no other way, I don't think, for an American audience to sympathize and to place themselves imaginatively into these political and philosophical questions. And I think he was right. He does it and he does it superlatively. When all is said and done, intolerance does provide hope. And, you know, the ending is very strange. You have this sort of tour de force of all these cataclysmic events and this sigh of relief for the contemporary story. Again, as if to say, you know, we can avoid this. And then you, of course, you get this almost bizarre ending, but it, it avoids being, you know, laughable. I mean, it would be easy, I think, in the hands of a lesser filmmaker that would just laugh at something like this today. I mean, and Chaplin, in his own way, I think slightly parodies this in the dream sequence in The Kid, a film I hope have time to talk about sometime because the tramp wakes up from a vision of the future that's all wonderful but it's one that's marred even even chaplain's heaven the devil can still get into for griffith that's not the way it works yes eric this is a fitting conclusion for our conversation and i think our audience when you, when you watch this movie you will experience the emotional pull and you'll see why griffith is now talked about as an educator of directors rather than of america Directors were the only people to notice that this is how you make movies if you understand that your audience is your audience, that there's an America out there, these are the people you're talking to. All of a sudden, it seems like you have an enormous power over people, but only so long as you, in a certain way, respect them as who they are. 
people get a kind of notion that with this new power, you can get propaganda, you can get people to believe anything. Actually, you can get Americans to believe they're Americans, and nobody has really persuaded them of anything else. Griffith was an educator of artists, of directors, because he wanted to be an educator of democracy, and he respected people. That's something that might seem, so just about the ending, it's very earnest, it's very sentimental, but I don't know of any sophisticated rather than earnest way of dealing with art or democracy that's any better. Not that D.W. Griffith was perfect by no means, but he showed what this art really is and how people would have to think about cinema. Eric, again, thank you for talking to me about these movies and for lightening my path, so to speak, with uh, your scholarship. It has led me to think about Griffith in a way that uh, I never had before. I started studying cinema, taking film courses in college, and Griffith impressed me, but I didn't know at 18 or 20 why. I would not have been able to say that I'm going to take this person seriously. I didn't quite know why. In our time, cinema does not have this power, and directors do not have the presumption, so to speak, to address democracy directly about the human questions. The combination of honesty and power over the audience in Griffith is, I think, unparalleled. So returning to these movies and to the history of cinema and to this American love affair with an American art has been wonderful. Well, thank you, Titus. It's, uh, I mean, you know, our conversations have been wide ranging. We started these podcasts with Hitchcock and here we are in Griffith, right? And so I, I've learned a lot from talking to you over the years and listening to you and reading your articles and essays. And so they've been a great inspiration to me as well. I think that it's interesting to see where Griffith goes next. And so we're going to have to take a look at Broken Blossoms, where he goes from being the grandmaster of the epic and the democratic to the intimate and the artistic. And his versatility doesn't end yet. So we have a lot left to go and explore. And I hope that we can do that. And actually, in many ways, Broken Blossoms is probably my favorite Griffith film. So I have thoroughly enjoyed the conversations and the ability to bounce ideas off each other and looking forward to digging further into the archaeology of the beginnings of film here. So thank you so much for indulging my passion for the cinema that relies on everything but the spoken word. After all, we all know that these talking pictures are just a fad and they'll all be over soon. Uh, we are so stuck with the spoken word. The movies are quite powerful without it. So everyone, go watch the movie, watch it along with us, and listen to our conversation again, and watch the next movie. We will be doing a series, and Broken Blossoms is next. All the best, Eric, meanwhile. Take care, Tivis. Thanks so much.